2 Samuel chapter 19, jump in. We're studying the life of David. Things have gone really well and then really badly and then they're starting to get better, but it's kind of a mingled story. And in chapter 19, what's, what is, what is, where are we at? What's been happening in like, you know, 16, 17, 18? What's the big backstory as of late for David? Absalom. Absalom. So Absalom is trying to, excuse me, Absalom's trying to steal the kingdom, and that's bad. And so we got all kinds of intrigue and spies and all kinds of things going on. And it seems like we've turned the corner here, right? Mostly because Absalom's dead, all right? So there's that. And da- but David is not yet reinstated as king. What we're about to watch in chapter 19 is the immediate aftermath. So David's army defeated his opposition via the death of his son, which is hard news. And what's going to happen next? That's basically where we're at in this whole thing. All right? <clears throat> See, there it is. I knew it. I should never eat. <clears throat> and yet, I have no regrets. Chapter 19, verse 1 says this. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. <clears throat> Army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. And the men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Okay? So we talked about this a little bit last week at the very end. This is massively demoralizing for the troops. They were sent out to risk their lives to save David and his kingdom. And they did exactly what they were told to do. And then Joab kills Absalom, which is not what he was told to do. And so their victory is this very inverted story. So they won the war, but the king is sad that they won, right? Joab is the guy that has been watching this all along. And what do you think Joab's going to do when he hear, when the troops all come skulking in, when his troops, he's the commander of the army, when his troops come skulking in, what do you think Joab's going to do? What the heck, dude? Okay, good. John? <laughs> He does. And now it is, so he, he, he basically straightens David out and says, if you don't knock it off, you're going to lose everything. There might be a more direct and offensive speech to a monarch in the Bible, but I don't know what it is, right? There might be. I don't know. Look, look, look at what he says. I mean, Joab, this is super audacious. This is crazy presumptuous. Verse 5. Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today, you, he's talking to a king, okay? You have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out. And encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that will come upon you from your youth until now. There's no tact. There's no diplomacy. There's, I mean, could you, it would be hard to make that any more abrasive, any sharper, any stronger. Job, no, nothing formal. There's nothing, oh, king, live forever. You know, I mean, it is like you blew it. You blew it huge. You're wrong. And, you're st- and if you don't obey me, he's telling the king, it's like he's a six-year-old. You're going to go out right next to your next door neighbor. You're going to apologize for what you did. And, you're gonna di- and the king <laughs> takes it. 
This is David. David has told men to put their swords on for less than this, right? And he just folds and he takes it. It's a huge risk to give the king a direct order, but it works. Look at verse 8. So the king got up and he took his seat in the gateway. And when the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Probably, despite the incredible abruptness of this, I think it probably is the salvation of David's kingdom right here, right? His enemy has been defeated, but that does not mean that he's back on the throne. And Joab, in an incredibly audacious moment, and I think it's mingled, I mean, I'm not sure that it was the exact approach that Joab needed to use, but it is the approach that he did use, and it worked. He was mad. What is that? He was mad. He was mad. But generally, we cover our anger when we're talking to sovereigns who have the ability to kill us, right? But Joab is just, he's hot. And so, yeah, yeah. And David yields, which I think is to his credit. It's a little bit surprising, but he does it, okay? And now that the threat has put down, this still doesn't mean he's, he's back on the throne quite yet, okay? So what does he have to do in order to accomplish this? This part gets a little bit confusing, and there's a whole host of characters, most of whom we've met before, but if you have my disease, you don't know who any of these people are, right? So we're going to try to remember, we'll, we'll kind of do a little bit of reminiscence here and see who these people are, okay? Because I think this is kind of confusing. Look at 8 to 10. We'll start here. Meanwhile... The Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. This is David they're referring to. But now he has fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Okay, so first of all, when we say Israel in here, don't be confused about this. Israel is opposed to who? Judah. It's as opposed to Judah. So, so this is a little bit confusing. So sometimes we mean Israel, including all 12 tribes, as opposed to like the Philistines and the Amalekites and everybody else around. Okay, but here in this context, you're exactly right. Sure. He's talking about Israel as opposed to Judah. It, unpack that a little bit. It was a divided kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judah. David was king over that's right. Yes. So they're all along. There's really 12 tribes, but those 12 tribes divided kind of into two sections. There's Judah, which is the largest. That's where the, we get the name of the Jews come from, the people of Judah, right? Um, David is from there. Uh, this is like the, the center of the thing. But the rest of Israel, the other 10 tribes, Benjamin often gets thrown in with Judah. The other 10 tribes are a kind of a different faction. And it's kind of like you'd have in this country. You might say, you know, we have a north and a south that was you know, maybe exaggerated or made more clear through the Civil War. But you could also have the Midwest is different from the Northeast. Right? There's just culture within the thing. And David is of Judah. If you remember back way long ago, like, you know, 15 years ago, he became king over Judah before he became king over all of Israel, right? But later on, that's going to become very... <laughs> and then, that's right. And Stuart is saying what's going to happen is after David's kingdom comes Solomon, after Solomon's kingdom it's really going to split into two completely different nations. You're going to have the north and the south, which we call Israel and Judah. So this is Israel right now, the particular part of Israel. Um, these, these, the, what we would think of maybe as the ten northern tribes. And they're having a debate. What is their debate about in that, in that paragraph? What's going on there? Yeah, Zach? Institute David as our king? Yes. And what, what's, what complicates it? Should we reinstitute David as our king? What complicates it? There. 
his early past shows that he is one of our greatest kings, but then also, at the same time, he was pushed out by Absalom. So there's strength and weakness characteristics here. Okay, great. That don't know which king you're going to get, maybe? Okay, so, so Zach is saying, what you're seeing here, on the one hand, you've got like, David was a great king. We love David. Woohoo! He, he beat Goliath. He conquered the Philistines. David is the man. But then there's this whole thing that goes down with Absalom, and that's just a mess. And, and David is not at his best. So there's the level of, do we like David because he was good and maybe we're not quite so sure about him? That's true. But there's another layer to this that they're debating. Yeah, Kelly Sue? Uh, they were on Team Absalom, okay? So they were backing. So I don't know. Pick a thing. It's a, maybe we'd see it most closely in a presidential primary. You know, you're, you're rooting for candidate A in the primary. And when you're rooting for candidate A, you're downstreaming candidate B. And then candidate B wins the primary. And then you're like, I love candidate B. You know, he was, <laughs> right? You, you watch this all the time. So you'll see, like, in the, in the, you know, in the recent round, you know, in a debate, um, Vice President Harris, before she was Vice President, was saying some pretty horrible things about her opponent, right, Senator Biden, or Vice President Biden. And then when he wins the election, she'd love to be on his team, right? It's that, that's the dynamic that's going on. They're like, man, we backed the wrong horse. So what do we do about it, right? So what you're going to see is all this kind of political expediency. They sided with Absalom. And now there's a little bit of a race. Whether they want David or not, they're like, oh, David's going to be king. And it would be really nice if we were at the front of the line welcoming him back. That he might overlook the fact that we were just throwing rocks at him. <laughs> Dig it? Okay. So as it goes down, look at verse 11. This is all happening. Meanwhile, David himself, watch this. Verse 11. This is where we're going to play the name game that you might not recognize. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Quote, ask the elders of Judah, per Stuart's comment. This is the opposite. of This is the other half of the community. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? Since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters. So he's hearing all the like, oh, what are we going to do? We're on the wrong side. What are we going to do? Verse 12, you are my brothers, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Okay, so make a note of that. Like, Joab gets away with his rebuke, but only sort of. The king is planning to replace him, okay? Now, who here, what's that cat? Okay, we'll unpack him as we go. We'll watch, all these, we'll watch all these characters. We'll try to develop the key characters here. So, uh, first of all, we're, we're talking to Judah as opposed to Israel, right? That's clear. And what's David's essential message to these guys regarding Judah? Chris? Yeah, basically, he's like, why, why are you going to let all these northerners welcome you back in? You guys should be at the head of the line. Suzanne, were you going to add anything? You guys have been Team David from the get-go. Why aren't you at the head of the line? Yeah. And so he's just appealing to this competitive, and you're going to see this competition play out throughout the rest of the story, um, of like, David, what David wants, what's good for David, if everybody is clamoring to be on King David, right? And so he's basically egging them on. He's like, well, these guys want to bring me back in. What, what about you? And it's in David's best interest if everybody is trying to be in, on, on King David's team, okay? But who are 
Zadok and Abiathar are the ones to whom he gives this message. Do you have any memory of these weird names? The priests, that's good. What have they done? We've seen them before. Do you know what they've done? Do you have this, Suzanne? Yeah. Nice job. They bring the ark back uh, after David. Um, they are, uh, they, they, they show, this always is a pair. They show up several times throughout the narrative. Here's, I think, the kind of the key moment for them. It's 1 Samuel 15, or 2 Samuel 15. Listen to this. It says, when David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. His robe was torn and dust was on his head. And David said to him, if you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. You remember all this? This was like, I don't know, four or five weeks ago maybe. Won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there? This is our guys. Won't they be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. And their two sons, uh, how do you say this? Ahamaz, son of Zadok, and Jonathan, son of Abiathar, are there with me. Send them to me with anything you hear. So in that whole moment of all the intrigue and the spies in the kingdom, these were the guys, they're plants, they were plants. They were on Israel's side, but they're really on David's side. They were living inside, they were priests functioning under Absalom, but they were secretly supporting David. And so as David was establishing that network, those are his inside guys inside that, right? And so he's still utilizing them. They're totally on his team. They are from Israel, but he's using them to go, get, to go get Judah back in the game, right? And he's, gonna, he's basically giving everybody a chance to get in good with him to return. And he wants this race to reinstate him. Does that make sense? Okay, now here's what else happens. Verse 14. He won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. They sent word to the king, return you and all your men. And then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. And now at this point, what's going to get interesting is that we, first we're dealing with nations, you know, like all of Israel and all of Judah. And now it's going to start getting very particular. And we're going to have a roll call of all these people, most of whom were punks during this whole tr tricky time. Okay, so let's, we'll review who they are too. Uh, let's see. We'll start verse, where do we want to be? 16, okay. So the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. And Shemi, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Okay. Does anybody remember Shemi? Who is Shemi? He's the rock-throwing, dirt-kicking cursor. You remember this whole scene? Right? He's probably, I would say, the singularly most offensive character. Right? He is, the, he is the face of the opposition. Go, go back, just because it was so ridiculous. Go to 2 Samuel 16.5. This is this guy. 2 Samuel 16.5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, which is what? Benjamin, Benjamin right? Not, you know, not Judah. From Saul's family came out from there. And his name is Shemi, son of Gera. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and a special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shemi said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdoms over to your son Absalom, and you have come to ruin because you were a man of blood. 
And this is our guy. And he's at the head of the line. King David, hey, we're so glad you're back. Right? Watch what he says. Now, to his credit, he acknowledges it. Probably because he knows David remembers it. Okay? Um, let me see. Let me show you this. Go down to verse 18. When Shemi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king. And he said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king had left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the king. Okay? So he is like, he blew it. He knows he blew it. Whether he's actually loyal to David and has seen the error of his ways, or if he just merely doesn't want to get his head cut off, He's literally, he's, he's like the guys, you know, whenever Chick-fil-A opens a store, you know, and you're there at like 2 in the morning to get in line so you can get like a pack of free sandwiches. Like he's there. He is, he's camped out at the head of the line in the hopes of saving his life. Okay? And it works. All right, we'll see that as we go. Okay, so that guy, got that guy. Go back a little bit though. Look at verse 17. With him were a thousand Benjamites, with, this is with uh, our boy Shemi. With Shemi were a thousand Benjamites along with Zeba. Who's Zeba? Remember this guy? Zeba, Zeba, Zeba. Got anything? So say it real loud, Michael. Yes, Saul's servant. Very good. To whom he gave all the lands. But who do we associate Zeba with? Mephibosheth. And who is Mephibosheth? What? 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 Jonathan's son. Okay, so do you remember this whole thing? So you get David makes a promise to Jonathan, I will always be kind to you. I will always be kind to your children. And then Jonathan dies and Saul dies. And there's this kid, Mephibosheth, who, like his nurse dropped him when he was a kid and he's paralyzed or crippled or something all of his life. And David goes and he raises him up. He is the son of the enemy king, but he's the son of Jonathan. And David does good to him and loves him. And then a few chapters ago, Ziba, let's see, did I even grab this? I don't know if I grabbed this thing. I don't think I grabbed the verse. I don't remember the exact verse. But Ziba comes in and he totally sells out Mephibosheth. He comes in and he's like, Mephibosheth is no longer on your side. He's on Saul's side. The kid is such an ingrate. And then David's like, bah, everything that belonged to him now belongs to you. And he gives it to Ziba, right? So Ziba, that guy shows up here at the gate. And I'm losing my place here. So Ziba shows up. Um, this is, oh, it was 16.4. Where, where the king had said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba takes it all, okay? So Ziba's there, and he wants everything back, but someone else is there too. Who else is going to be here? Mephibosheth. So which is it? So this is so interesting. So, so Shemi's there. He's the guy that's kicking rocks. Ziba was there, and we don't know if he was lying to David. We, we never get it resolved. David doesn't know. But so Ziba's there trying to line things back up and make sure that he's still in good graces. And Mephibosheth is there. Look at verse 24. And I know we're skipping around, but I want to give it to you like thematically as you can remember this whole thing. In verse 24, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. What does that mean? It means he's in mourning. And... And he's, he's yucky. He's dirty and he looks bad. And he's got one of those crummy mustaches, okay? Um, but here's the thing. What, 
I, this is evidence. It's not conclusive evidence, but what is this evidence of, do you think? What is it? Yeah, he really, like, it takes a while to get your mustache as nasty as his, right? And so it's an evidence, not just that to, like, whereas we get the sense that Shemi just changed his mind, right? But it's evidence that Mephibosheth, way back here, like, he looks ratty enough that it, it takes a while to get this bad. And uh, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe Zeba really was lying, right? It's not conclusive, but it kind of leans the tree that way. And so he has this conversation with David. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, hey, uh, why didn't you go out with me the first time? Like, where were you? Is what Zeba said true? And he says in verse 26, my lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I'll have my donkey saddled. I'll ride on it so I can go with the king. But Zeba, my servant, betrayed me and he has slandered your servant, my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God. So do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death for my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? He's like, even if you, even if you stay on Zeba's side, that's fine. Because it wasn't even mine. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. And who am I to now suddenly demand justice when I've been the recipient of mercy? So it's, it's great. But I'm so glad you're home. Welcome back. Right? And so David now is like, well, for crying out loud, man. I, don't, I thought Zeba was telling the truth. And he doesn't know what the situation is. But he says this in verse 29. Why say more? I order. What's he going to do? Do you know what he does? He splits the baby. Very good, Zach. The king said, why say more? I order you and Zeba to divide the fields. Okay? What is interesting about that decision? I thought it all belonged to Mephibosheth. Well, it had belonged to Mephibosheth, and then it all went to Zeba, and now he's splitting it. Okay? There's something going on that's very, well, it's become more clear as we finish the chapter, but it's getting there. Tom? David's not sure who to believe. Right? Okay, so David doesn't know. He doesn't know for certain. I suspect that he thinks Mephibosheth is telling the truth. Certainly it's plausible because he goes this way. But even if that's the case, he's still incredibly gracious to Ziba. He could be like, all right, uh, number one, Mephibosheth gets everything. And number two, off with Ziba's head. But Ziba has showed up and he's gracious to Ziba. Mephibosheth shows up and he's gracious to him, right? A couple of hands. Anybody want to jump on this? Lily? Well, I just, I think it's interesting, too, that he makes that decision because it could also be seen, I, I mean, I feel like David's really humbling himself as he comes back into Jerusalem, but also maybe he shouldn't have taken everything that Ziba was taking care of and given it to Mephibosheth in the first place. Like, he's, I mean, it, if I remember it correctly, it was almost like he displaced him. He did. His power and his authority and his wealth and gave it all to Mephibosheth. So... I wonder if it's actually in part an admission of, you know, actually, I haven't been making the best decisions, even from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really good word. That, 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 that There is this sense of uncertainty, but what the, the one good, I don't like being uncertain, but the good thing about uncertainty is it reflects humility. You know, it's like, I don't, I may, I may have gotten this wrong. But then again, I might be getting it wrong now, and so I'm just not sure. And so he has this split decision, but don't lose sight of the fact that it's also very gracious 
to one of them. One of them that is lying through his teeth is still going to not be punished, right? It's a very gracious orientation. Stuart? Uh, it's also him trying to bring things back together from a, basically a civil war. Yes. He's trying to get everyone back on the same team. David is very, very peace-loving in this moment, right? Very much so. He wants everybody back. Hey, today's a, today's a happy day. I don't want anybody going home without a lollipop, all right? Now, but not everybody feels that way in the midst of this. And I skipped over this. We'll come back to it now. Back in verse 20, you know, you know 18, 19, 20 is the Shemi story. Shemi's the dirt kicker. And look at what happens in verse 21. Then... Abishai, son of Zariah, said, shouldn't Shemi be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. Now, who is Abishai? Do you remember him at all? One of the commanders. What's that? Joab's. Joab's brother. Very good. What do you know? What do we know? Every time he shows up, he always says the same thing. He's very quick-tempered. He's always quick to judge and want to pass judgment in a violent way. Absolutely. He's always quick to judge, to pass judgment, and then what was this? Throwing uh, spear. Oh. Yeah, that was... Shouldn't I just throw this? He he's endlessly wants to kill people. Like, every time he shows up, hey, you know what we should do here? We should kill that guy. Watch it. It happens every time he shows up. Look at this. In chapter 26, verse 8. For, I'm sorry, this is 1 Samuel. This is back in the day. 1 Samuel 26, 8, when Saul's chasing David around mountains and stuff like this, and they find him... Abishai, this is 26.8, Abishai says to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't, I won't strike him twice. Okay? Skip forward to 2 Samuel 16 regarding Shemi. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, This was not, this was not today when David's coming in and Shemi's being all... This was like the original moment. Back when Shemi's kicking the dirt. Abishai's like... Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Right? And then here in this instance, 21, true to form. Shouldn't Shemi be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. He is, he's got one solution in every situation. Just kill him. Just kill the bad guy. Kill, I'm sympathetic to that, actually. Just kill the bad guy. Let's just move on, right? And so David has got all these people coming. And he's got this particular, you know, right-hand guy that says, hey, hey, kill that guy. Let's just make it all better. But what characterizes his orientation on this particular day? He is merciful, merciful. At every instance, no matter who comes before him, his orientation is one of mercy. In every situation. Okay, here's one more. Look at this guy. Uh, go Second Samuel where are we at? Uh, where am I? Verse 31, 1931. This one's interesting too. Bar, I don't know how to say anybody's name. Barzillai, the Gileadite, also came down from Rogalem to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now, this guy was a very old man, 80 years of age. Apologies to those of you that are 80. Um, he had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. Apologies to those of you that are very wealthy. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I'll provide for you. All right? So there's an 80-year-old man. He's there and he's like, hey, welcome. Come live, in the, come live in the palace. Come join me. All right? Do you know who he is? Do you have any memory of him at all? 
He's very lightly mentioned. I don't think we discussed him in this class, but literally like every character in the story is previously seen. Who is this guy? Do you know? Take a look. Go back. Just a couple pages. 2 Samuel 17. When David went to that city, Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel, Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab, which answers your question earlier, but who is he? Amasa was the son of a man named Jether, an Israelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and the sister, all these names, blah, 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 blah. The Israelite and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead, okay? In verse uh, 27, when David came to that place, Shobi, son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and our guy, Barzali, the Gileadite from Rogam, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley and flour and roasted grains and beans and lentils and honey and curds and sheep and cheese for goat's milk for David and all his people to eat. For they said, the people have become hungry and tired in the desert. Who is this guy? He's the guy that when David was on the run and everything is bad, Absalom has just broken through and they flee. He's the old rich guy that shows up with a truckload of food and blesses David. So David's at his lowest point. He's afraid. He's hungry. He can't provide for his men. He's got everybody coming with him. And this guy shows up and just like lays out the bounty. Whenever you see this kind of thing, this long list that feels a little bit tedious, and it says, he brought wheat and barley and flour and roasted grains and beans and lentils and honey and curds and sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David. It's meant to be like, okay, 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 I get it. Like there's a ton of food, right? It's like, you know, Snack Vikings. I mean, just a ton of food, right? And this guy shows up, and David's like, dude, I love you. You are so good to me. Let me pay you back. And again, it's just this orientation is, is of bounty and kindness and generosity. And he says, well, I, no, I don't want to live in your house. I've got a house. Look what he says in verse 34. But Barzillai answers the king, how many more years will I live? that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king. I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is good and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance. But why should the king reward me in this way? Just let me go home. Let me return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. Okay, so the king makes a gracious offer. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't need it. I can't even taste your food anyway, right? So you have nothing really to offer me. I'm just going to welcome you in and let me go home. To which I think David would have said, okay, sure, no sweat, but thanks so much for the food, right? But there's one more little twist to it. Look at what he says. Uh, verse 37, let your servant return, that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever pleases you. Kim Ham is no one, right? He deserves nothing. He has done nothing. But David is in such a merciful, gracious mood. He's going to be kind to Shemi. He's going to be kind to Ziba. He's going to be kind to Mephibosheth. He wants to be kind to this Barzillai guy, dude. Um, but he doesn't do anything. And so he's like, well, can we, can we relay it to this other guy that you've never heard of and you know nothing about? He's like, yeah, sure, whatever you want. Like, he's just in a state of bounty and grace. And so he says, um, the king said, Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever pleases you. And anything that you desire for me, I will do for you. This is 
It's a little bit like the very, have you ever noticed at the very end of the book of Job? The end of Job. So Job, you all know the story, right? Job suffers terribly and everything's horrible. And then God mercifully restores him. And when he restores him, he does something very interesting, okay? I want you to think about this. All of scripture is pointing to Christ. The whole book, every page, the whole thing is endlessly about him. Job, think about this. Job is about a man who is totally innocent. And yet he suffers terribly. Loses everything. But after he goes to the lowest place and suffers terribly, he is exalted up to the highest place. And he gets more than he even had before the suffering began. And then, having been exalted to this place, back of supremacy, he, do, you know, do you remember what Job does? This is kind of a little throwaway detail, it fills mind, but it's really important to the story. Do you remember what Job does after he is restored and is blessed again? Praise for his friends. He prays for his friends. He had these faithless friends that were accusing him and that were guilty of the things they said about God. They were false. And he, he takes his place of exalted authority to intervene for his friends so that God will not judge them for the wrong that they had done. Right? Does that ring a bell? Can you think of another innocent sufferer who goes to the lowest place and then is exalted to the highest place and he spends all that he has to bless those that had accused and wronged him? Job is telling the story of the gospel. And David's life is telling the story of the gospel. As he comes back into his kingdom, having come down to this place of misery and being restored to this place of exaltation, he spends his kingdom for the benefit of his enemies. He is bountifully gracious. He's incredibly generous. And I think that's one of the, I mean, as we're learning to read this, we're trying to say, how is this anticipating it? What we're seeing is the heart of the king, the heart of this king who is the prototype of Messiah is endless generosity, both to those who have loved him, right? Like perhaps Mephibosheth and Barzillai. I'll never learn how to say that guy's name. But also to Shemi, that he shows grace. And I think that gives us some measure of hope, right? John, I'm not probably going to have a chance to call on you today, bro. I'm sorry. I've just got to finish what we're doing here and then we've got to dismiss. That this picture here is meant to give you hope. That as Christ himself comes into his kingdom... He's, the way Paul puts it, he gives gifts to men. He's gracious with us. He's gentle with us. He does so to the extent that we have served him and loved him. And he does so despite the fact that we have scorned him and ridiculed him. He is endlessly gracious. And then David crosses over. So in verse 40, when the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimam crossed with him and all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. And it's complete. And he's reinstated. And yet, the people continue to fight. Which also, I think, perhaps has a little bit, of, little bit to say about the state of the church. Once they're in, Israel's still fighting with Judah. Judah's still fighting with Israel. Everybody wants credit. And I think what we're supposed to see is, in the season where the king is gracious and kind, and the people are the recipients of it, man, that thing is still in our hearts, Right? That we still fight and we bicker and we clamor and we still want to be on top. Even though we live in a world, a sea of grace, there's just such a strong impulse to be like, yeah, but I also want credit because it was me, 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 right? And for the rest of your life, you're going to be working out. You live in a sea of grace and yet you still want credit. That's, in my experience, dies kind of slow, right? But if we would kind of embrace the fullness of the gospel, what's going on in David's life, that grace would 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 
free us from the infighting, that we would not only rest in the grace that we've received, but we would extend it to others. And may it be so sooner than later for us. Good enough? All right, so in two weeks, no, three weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll get into chapter 20, but for the next couple of weeks, parenting on purpose. That's all we got. Thanks. Ooh, hang on one second. One second. So, Susan, so this is red. Okay. And I'm going to turn it off. Okay. So...